as questions come up, as they've been speaking, um, please uh, use the QR code or you can text me questions and we'll make sure to answer those. Okay. Thank you, Caleb. Uh, yeah, so I graduated here in 2020. So the last time I was in this room was before COVID. And then I didn't know it was going to be the last time I was in this room. So here I am back again. Uh, so before I get started, I want to do a shameless self-plug. My church, me, I'm hiring an intern for the summer. So uh, a female youth intern, I work in the youth group. Uh, we have a great group of middle school and high school girls. And as hard as I might try, I cannot be a girl to relate to them. So we're hiring someone. If that's something you might be interested in, please talk to Caleb. He's got an application for that. And I'm, I'm echoing a little bit. Uh, so yeah, talk to him. Apply. That would be awesome. I'd love to see it. And this is my segue into my sermon. Here we go. Uh, if you were to talk to any of the youth in my youth group about how I teach on Wednesday nights, they would tell you that I like to have one main point. And if they remember that main point, the next week I'll give them a candy bar. Well, if you hear Caleb or any PCA pastor preach, you know that they like to have three main points. And so as a concession to this, I made one main point that I could split up into three parts. And I will not give you a candy bar if you remember it. But here it is. Marriage is good, but singleness is better when Christ is best. And yes, this is a sermon on singleness. And before you ask, yes, I did write it on Valentine's Day. I'm going to go through the first two points pretty quickly, but only because the third point is the driving factor for the entire passage. And with that in mind, if you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 7, 25-38. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry would have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's dive into the first point. Marriage is good. And when you read this passage, it's easy to think that Paul is putting down the option of marriage. When he writes things like, 
Those who marry would have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Or even, the married man is anxious about worldly things, and his interests are divided. Or, the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband in verse 34. And while, yes, this is a sermon on singleness, I want to make sure to touch on marriage because the point of this sermon is not to say that marriage is a bad choice for your Christian life. And why is this not the takeaway? Well, if you were to just read this passage alone, you might think it is, but the good news is this is not the entire Bible, right? The same Paul who wrote this is the same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, where he says that love is patient, love is kind. You've heard it at every Christian wedding you've ever been to. You also see it in Genesis 2.24, where it's written that two become one flesh, right? That is the provision, the command that God gives for marriage from the beginning. And we can look to the end in Revelation 21.2, when the new Jerusalem is being described as a bride adorned for her husband. Marriage is a union God created, and is a beautiful picture of something redeeming and honoring. And who should be married? Paul says in verse 36, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. And Caleb touched on this last week, but Paul is saying sexual desire is a sign to look for a spouse. So yes, you can have sexual passion, and it's not a bad thing, uh, and we just did not discover sex behind God's back, right? It's a good thing that he created. But if it's so strong that you must act on it, do it within the covenant of marriage so that you do not sin. And you might be thinking, that is the, the least romantic reason to get married. And yes, it's not a thing to get down on one knee and say, baby, please marry me, I'm so horny. Bad, bad, <laughs> bad thing to do. Don't do that, don't do that. Paul's not saying it's a reason to propose. He's saying it's a reason that you know you're not supposed to be single. And I know, trust me, I know that there are people burning in passion, especially in college. I was an RA at the John for three and a half years. Oh, <laughs> Rain came. I was an RA there for three and a half years, and those walls are very thin. All right? I know, right? Thankfully, the last people would finish up before quiet hours, so I didn't have to go knock on the door. These are things I get to say because I don't work here, and I get to leave at the end of this. <laughs> So then, marriage has a biblical basis and exists for a good reason, right? That's what I'm saying. It's a good thing. And I want you to keep this in mind during the rest of the sermon, that marriage is a good thing for those it's meant for. Paul even says in verse 38, So then he who marries his betrothed does well. So do not hear me devaluing the option of marriage as I describe what Paul says is the better option. Which leads me to my second point, that singleness is better. And before I go to the rest of the sermon, I want to tell you all why you should care about singleness. And obviously, many of you are single, so you do care, but that might not be true for the rest of your life. I read a book recently by a pastor named Sam Albury, who I had the joy of being able to hear speak recently. The book is called Seven Myths About Singleness. In it, he has two reasons why everyone, no matter your stage in life, should care about singleness. First, if you are married, if you get married, it does not guarantee that you will not be single again, right? Usually couples do not die at the same time, so even if you're married, there's a good chance that your spouse will die before you and you'll be single again. Or, hopefully not, divorce does happen. So you cannot count singleness out of your life, even if you get married. Second, you should care because in Romans 12, Paul refers to the church as a body. And hopefully, if you're in a church or will join a church one day, 
What it means for the church to be a body is that what happens to one person and what happens in one person's life affects everybody's life in the church. So just as your singleness affects someone who's married in the church and their marriage, right, their marriage affects your life and your singleness. So you should care about singleness no matter where you are in life. And in Christian circles, when we bring up singleness, people often refer to it as a gift. In 1 Corinthians 7, at the beginning, Paul refers to singleness as a gift. Well, one of my favorite Christmas traditions is doing the white elephant gift exchange, which for those of you that don't know what this is, it's when you wrap up a gift of low value and you bring it into an event and everyone trades their gifts around and you hope to leave with something better than you brought. Well, honestly, my favorite part about the white elephant gift exchange is not giving or getting a gift. It is watching people open up absolutely terrible gifts. When I was at TU, I was a member of PLS and we met next door at Sharp Chapel. Uh, I'm not sure if this still happens, but every year we would do a white elephant gift exchange. It looks like it does. I'm getting some nods. It still happens. Uh, the general rule that was unsaid is that everyone would bring absolutely terrible gifts because it was so funny to watch people open them up. One year I brought a copy of Bible Man on VHS tape and I wrapped that up. And I ended up leaving with a nice Star Wars blanket because some poor freshman girl didn't realize that she was supposed to bring a bad gift. And while my VHS was a terrible gift given on purpose, many of us can think back to Christmas or birthdays where a relative has given us an absolutely terrible gift and we have to act like we really like it. And when we get a gift like that, we think there's three possible reasons why they gave us a gift that we don't like. One, the giver doesn't know us very well. Two, they're playing a prank on us. Or the third option is we don't understand the gift and why we need it. For example, when you get socks as a little kid, you're like, really? Like, you wasted a whole gift on socks for me? But then when you get a, socks as an adult as a gift, you're like, thank goodness. It's like, I am running out of socks, and I really needed this. And when we talk about singleness, we call it the gift of singleness, and we think about it like that gift God gives, and we say, oh, singleness. God, you really shouldn't have. Like, you, you really shouldn't have. Or it's like that vine where the dad wraps up the avocado and gives it to his son, and the kid opens it, and he goes, avocado. Thanks. It's like we're like singleness. Thanks, God. Really, thank you. But here's the thing. We think back to those three options. Is it that God doesn't know us? No, he knows us better than we know ourselves. So that's not the case. Is it that he's playing a prank on us? God has a sense of humor, but he's not, he doesn't play a prank on us with the gifts he gives us. So then the only option is that this is a gift that we truly need, but we probably don't understand. And so it's my goal to help you understand singleness tonight and help you understand why Paul says it's better. But to help you understand singleness, you need to first understand what biblical singleness actually is. What is Paul referring to when he talks about being single? It's not just being unmarried, it's also being celibate or refraining from sex. See, right off the bat, Paul says, now concerning the betrothed. This word betrothed is from the Greek word parthenos, which is referring to a woman who is a virgin, and later in the, Paul, in the passage, Paul says, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So for the man and the woman, singleness does not just mean being unmarried, it also means refraining from sex. And this is the kicker for most people when it comes to biblical singleness. See, to the world's common view of sex, it actually makes sense not to be married. 
right? Because that means you can have as many sexual partners as you want, and you're not tied down to someone. And that makes the celibate part of biblical singleness seem crazy to the world. But to the Christian world, it's the unmarried part that makes absolutely no sense. Christian purity culture has taught us to overvalue marriage and set it as the be-all, end-all of your lives. I've heard far too many stories of men and women who have been hurt by purity culture's demonization of sex, saying that it is dirty, while overvaluing marriage, and saying that it is all you're meant for. You're told to save yourself for marriage, which makes you feel like yourself, the self that you're saving, all it's meant for is marriage, and you're incomplete in the meantime. You think by saving yourself for marriage, you're saving yourself through marriage. And this unfortunately has been taken way too far by many Christians when we think that marriage is the way to honor God. For many in the Christian world, marriage is not an if, it's a when. And at some point we need to acknowledge that marriage can easily become an idol for many of us who feel as if we need to get married if only for the fact that the adults in our lives will finally take us seriously. That they'll finally see us as mature and finally see us as full adults. Over the past two years, I've had the honor of being in five weddings, and I'll be in another this summer. And in the last one, I came, to hang, I came back to campus to hang out with some friends. And one of my friends uh, said, always the groomsman, never the groom, to me. And that person may or may not be in this room, and I would never, I would never say who it is, <clears throat> JP. <laughs> but I really don't blame him for saying that, honestly. We've been conditioned to view singleness as a temporary stage of life, when we wait for God to finally bless us and give us a spouse, and then we can be a real adult, right? That's what we're, we're conditioned to think. Or another example of this emphasis on marriage that Christians make is from the Sam Albury book I mentioned earlier. In it, he says that married people need to stop referring to single people as unmarried. This is my unmarried friend. He's unmarried. Um, because this automatically defines them by their relationship status and has an air of incompletion about the word. The, they are unmarried now, but maybe one day they'll graduate into full married life, and then, then, they're, then they're a real person, then they're a real adult. Just as I would not call a married person unsingle, unmarried probably isn't the most loving term when we're talking about single people. So to the non-Christian and the Christian alike, Paul's concept of singleness as one who is not married and one who is celibate is crazy to both. It's crazy to both. It's unappealing and unattractive. But when we look at this passage, we see a completely different picture. We see Paul saying that living a life as one who is, is unmarried and who is celibate is better than living as a married person. So here's the point you've been waiting for. Why? Why is that the case? Marriage is good, but singleness is better. Why? Because Christ is best. Point three. Let's look at how Paul sets up his reasoning. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, we're going to pause there. When reading this, you might have two questions. What is the present distress Paul's talking about? First question. Second question is, since we're not living in that same present distress, does this passage not apply to us anymore? Different context. Well, to answer your first question, we need to have a brief history lesson. I was a history major here at TU, so I get to use my major. <laughs> so Paul wrote this book in 54 AD, which is the same year that Nero became emperor in Rome. 
And if that name sounds familiar, that's good. It should. Nero was the emperor that was famous for persecuting Christians. When the fire happened in Rome, he used it as a reason to have Christians arrested and beaten and killed in horrific ways. And this also takes place after a 10-year period where the previous emperor, Claudius, had, emperors, or had Christians hunted down and exiled from Rome for their faith. So Paul is saying, look, things are crazy out there. Things are crazy out there for us. And to the second question of, does this apply to us today? Can you honestly look me in the eye and tell me that things aren't crazy out there? And honestly, as a history major, I can tell you that there has seldom been a time since the resurrection of Christ that things have not been crazy out there. So yes, this passage does apply to us today. It is the inspired word of God that may not have been written to us, but it was absolutely written for us. Context never nullifies scripture's messages. It just helps explain it. So knowing that things are crazy out there, Paul then goes on to say in verse 28, those who marry would have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So Paul is focusing his argument on why singleness is better than marriage on worldly troubles. Those both going on outside of the home, in the world, and those going on in a marriage. And though I've never been married, I'm sure those who are married, and I've asked, would agree that marriage does increase your problems in the world. Not all bad ones, but when you're married, you have to think about buying a house, where you're going to live, raising kids, uh, sharing money, making all of your decisions with somebody else in mind. And he isn't saying that when you're single, you don't have worldly troubles. Paul is saying when you're single, you have fewer. So why does Paul set up this argument on worldly troubles? Well, he says his answer right away in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Paul is saying that our time on this earth is in a state of coming to a close and that Christ is returning very soon. So as we wait for that to happen, what is life supposed to look like for us? Well, think about it like this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Unfortunately, at the rebellion of man, we were enslaved by our sins and we lost track of our true purpose. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice for our sins so that we might be justified by his actions and secure eternal life. So now we're in this time that we call already but not yet, where Jesus already did the work, right? The work is done. We know how the story ends. The Bible tells us it, but it has not yet happened. And when you truly understand all this and you believe it, everything else in your life should pale in comparison to that knowledge that Christ is more important than everything. And Paul knows this full well. He says, if that's the case, why would you let anything distract you from your true purpose? Anything. This world is so full of troubles, so why would you add more to your life? So then we finally get to why singleness is better, according to Paul. It's not because you earn premium salvation. You don't get that Six Flags fast pass right into heaven, past the huge lines. It's not because God likes single people better. Singleness is better because Paul says it's simpler and allows you to focus your life more on Christ. He says it in verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious about things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. As a single person, you have more time to devote 
to the Lord and the things of ministry, things like volunteer ministry, spending time with others, or having more time available for study and devotion. This does not mean if you're married that you can't please the Lord or that you don't have to. It just means that if you're not careful, marriage can easily become a distraction from those things. And Paul lays out his application for all of this in verse 29 through 31. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul teaching here? The best way I can explain this is to quote Paul himself in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count everything as loss compared to knowing Christ. All the things that we idolize and we focus on in the world that distract us from Christ, Paul counts as garbage. Paul's saying that the things that you find important are nothing. So live your life knowing that God has already given you something better to do with it. It's the thing that you were made for in the first place. It's not marriage. It's not singleness. It's focusing on Christ. A good test to know whether you're letting the things of this world become an idol to you is your answer to this question. And I'm going to ask it, and I'm going to ask you to think about it for a few seconds. How would you feel if I told you that Christ was coming back tomorrow? I want you to think about it. I want you to think of your answer. I'm going to take a sip of water. My mouth is dry. How would you feel if I told you Christ was coming back tomorrow? For some, the feeling is, could he just wait till I get married? Could he just wait till I have kids, or my kids get married, or my kids have kids, or wait till I get that job I want? What about my plans? Like, could he wait till I have sex for the first time? Could he wait till I'm successful? Like, what about my goals in life? In the grand context of God's plan for this world, those answers might seem ridiculous because the new earth will be far better than any of those things. But if that was your first thought and that was your answer, I promise you, you're not alone. It's a condition of our brokenness that we take on these idols and we think we can can find completion in our lives outside of God. We don't trust that what God has freely given us is worth so much more than anything we might work to earn ourselves. To those that will be married in the future, know that God will have called you into an amazing union that is incredible and incredibly honoring to God. But please, for the sake of your faith life and those around you who are single, know that marriage is not the ultimate good in this world. To those that are single whether you want to be or not, which is most people in this room, know that you are not missing out on anything. Everything you might ever want, everything you might ever need, comes from Christ. The loneliness and emotional pain that comes with singleness is a feeling you might know all too well. And it can be overwhelming at times. But remember that God himself, when he came to live on this earth, chose to live as a single and a celibate man into his 30s. He chose to live as a single and celibate man into his 30s. 
The Bible tells us we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Well, we don't have a savior who's unable to empathize with us because he lived that life and he knows that loneliness. He knows it. He lived it. It's my hope that you never feel like a second-class citizen as a single person, but instead know that your singleness can be an incredible blessing to Christ that is, could be better than marriage. Focusing your life on his will and pleasing him will bear far more fruit than focusing on the things that you want ever will. To those in the room who are same-sex attracted, I hope I'm not the first to ever apologize to you for the ways that the Bible might be used to hurt you. Many of you might feel overwhelming shame about your orientation and the need to hide it, or on the opposite side, you might feel compelled by the culture we live in to express your sexuality as freely as you can. Know that both of these solutions are not what God calls you to. For those who feel the need to hide it, there's so much freedom and telling those you love and those who love you about the thing that you've been hiding so you can finally feel known. I promise you that Caleb, Bethany, or Connor would love to listen to your story, and they would be great people to tell. To those who find themselves on the other side of same-sex attraction, who feel compelled to practice your sexuality freely, I want to say this. You are no less loved for your choices. But both the world and the church have failed you in making you feel that practicing your sexuality in marriage is what you're meant for and is the most important thing in your life. And I know it seems unfair or cruel that Christianity calls you to give up practicing your sexuality while giving straight people an outlet for it. But I promise you that Christ is worth far more than anything that you might find for yourself. Giving up your sexuality for singleness and celibacy does not mean losing a part of who you are. It means finding a way of discovering who you really are, which is a son or a daughter of Christ. I want to close with a quote from Martin Luther King. And I came across this on MLK Day last month, and after I realized it, I realized, after I read it, I realized it was an incredible example of the faith and kingdom focus that Paul calls us to in this passage. It comes from King's last speech that he gave in Memphis the day before he died. And he ends his speech with this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight, and I'm not worried about anything, and I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. While King's message was uniquely for those that he was talking to, the core of his message is true for absolutely every one of us. Friends, this life is absolutely fleeting. Anything that you have hope in outside of Christ will ultimately fail you. Scripture tells us how this side of creation will end. And as we wait for Christ's return, let us let nothing get in the way of focusing every part of our life on him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word says that your mercies are new every morning. And though we don't deserve them, we honor you for the love and compassion you show us when we fail to put you first. 
We confess that we do not always focus on you, Lord, but I pray for those in this RUF that they go forth as those who know that you are worth more. Amen. Yes, you go ahead and stand. Give me just a second to get situated.